This Dharma talk by Joan Sutherland, Ling Zhao, and the Bodhisattva Way was given at Cerro Gordo Temple in Santa Fe, New Mexico on January 12, 2012. Good evening, Bodhisattvas. Welcome to you all. Um, About six months from now, uh, during our summer meditation retreat, a um, band of beautiful and foolhardy people will be taking up the way of the Bodhisattva, taking refuge in the Bodhisattva way in a ceremony we do every couple of years. So between now and then, every once in a while, I'm going to be talking about one aspect or another of this beautiful and foolhardy act of agreeing to take up the Bodhisattva way. And I want to start tonight by making a bridge with what we were talking about last year in the sutra that Vimalakirti spoke, because in some ways this is just a continuation of that conversation. Uh, one of the themes of the Vimalakirti Sutra has to do with what it means to be a bodhisattva and particularly what it means to be one as a householder, as a layperson. And since that's what all of us are doing, that seems important. So um, I'll begin tonight with an essay I wrote recently um, for a book of of koans uh, that involve women and, and um, a, a lot of women teachers were asked to, to write an essay on a koan about that. And I'll start with some excerpts from the essay I wrote on, um, on a koan about Pong Ling Zhao. It's the one about her falling down next to her father, which has become, um, I don't know, something very important to many of us. It speaks to a lot of us in, in the community. And it also has to do with this question of what it means to be stained and dyed by being a bodhisattva so completely that nothing sticks out. (laughs) There are no badges or emblems or signs. There is just a life of such great openness and spontaneity and uh, humor and good grace. So the koan goes like this. One day, Layman Pong and his daughter, Ling Zhao, were out selling bamboo baskets. Coming down off a bridge, he stumbled and fell. When Ling Zhao saw this, she ran to her father's side and threw herself to the ground. What are you doing? cried the layman. I saw you fall, so I'm helping, she explained. Luckily, no one was looking, remarked the layman. So this Pong family, which was Layman Pong, his wife, um, their daughter Lin Zhao, and their unnamed son, um, have really been the, the embodiment of enlightened householder life in China and now in many parts of the world since about the 8th century. And the, the qualities of their life um, that seem to resonate through the centuries involve a real movement toward and commitment to simplicity and modesty in the way they lived. They kept giving things up. They gave up all their money 
And then eventually they even gave up the house they were living in, um, which became a temple which was, st was still existing in the 19th century. I'll tell you a story about that in a bit. Um, deeply committed to the way and also deeply committed to each other, um, which ends in a kind of remarkable and, and shocking way when three, three of them die within a couple of weeks of each other. And they were full of humor, and they were unabashedly eccentric, each in their own way. During the time that they were alive, and for those of you who are, have been following along for a while, I'll tell you that Lehman Pong was um, a student of Great Master Ma, who was considered the great first of the great koan. The first koans were stories about um, Ma's conversations with people, and some of those koans are about stories of Ma's conversations with Lehman Pong. So during this very time when they were alive, what awakening was, was beginning to change. The idea of what it was, was changing due to the work of um, a group of people, including Great Master Ma. And what was being seen was that awakening is something that happens in relationship. It's not an individual, deeply introverted event. It's something that happens in the space between people or between a person and, and some other being or some other um, thing. Um, and so these early koans are all about the kinds of encounters, the kinds of conversations in which there is a, a moment of awakening, a spark of awakening that happens. And the ones that involve the pongs made really clear from the beginning of the koan tradition two things that we might take for granted today but were not obvious at that time. And one is that awakening is as likely and as profound among householders as it is among monastics and among women as it is among men. So Lehman Pong was someone who, as I said, renounced all of his wealth and spent his life in various sorts of communion with some of the great Chan um, figures of his day. And Mrs. Pong, about him, I'll tell you a couple of stories, because in, in getting closer to Lingja, I've gotten closer to Mrs. Pong, and um, I have a huge crush on her. Um, she, she seems to have been simultaneously no-nonsense and also deeply connected to the mysterious. We don't know a lot about their son, except that he worked in the fields and raised the food that they ate. Uh, but for many people, the most luminous member of the family is the daughter, Ling Zhao, whose name means spirit shining. Ling Zhao and her father were inseparable, and they supported the family to the extent that they were supported by making utensils and baskets out of bamboo and then selling them in the marketplace. And she later, as she grew older, accompanied him on his pilgrimages around the country. Sometimes they lived in, when they were living the high life, they lived in huts and cottages, and sometimes they lived in caves together. So once when they were out um, selling their bamboo baskets, uh, Lehman Pong tripped, and Ling Zhao threw herself down next to him and uttered the immortal words, I saw you fall, so I'm helping. 
Um, this is the, the little bit of the riff that I did on, on that. Lin Zhao's action obliterates the idea that there is a helper and a helped. Compassion isn't a commodity we deliver, but a commitment, as Chan puts it, to help liberate the intimacy already inherent in any situation. That's a little chewy, so I'll say it again. In Chan, which is the Chinese pronunciation of the word pronounced Zen in Japanese, what we are wanting to do to the extent that we can is to liberate the intimacy already inherent in any situation. In Chinese, to become intimate is a synonym for to become enlightened. They're used interchangeably in the literature. And the idea was not that this intimacy is something we manufacture and, um, and deliver, but something that is already inherent everywhere, in, in everything. And our job is to find it and to bring it out, to liberate it. What is most intimate, the koan suggests, that we ask? Over and over again, it's a really good question to carry around. Situation after situation, encounter after encounter. What is most intimate here? Usually, the most intimate response to another's difficulty begins with the willingness not to flee. Fleeing can take the form of abandoning the situation, and it can also mean escaping into helping, into a whole constellation of ideas about what ought to happen. Helping is full of agendas (laughs) and presuppositions and um, certainties. I think, often. Intimacy is being willing to stay and accompany and listen, to be vulnerable and surprised and flexible. It's a willingness to fall with someone else and see what becomes possible when we do. This sense of falling is large in the literature of of the koans. It comes up over and over again in a lot of different ways. So that you have um, a koan where somebody says, the clear-eyed person, the bodhisattva, the awakened one, um, falls into a well. And one way we can understand that is um, clear-eyed, awakened, we still make mistakes. And that's true. For sure, that's true. And I think there's something else that's true. I think what it's suggesting is that for a clear-eyed person, for a bodhisattva, for someone who is awakening, if a well is what, it pre- if a well is what presents itself, we are willing to fall into the well. If the world presents a well, down we go because that's what it means to be really engaged with life. So, Lehman Pong's final remark, luckily no one was looking, is about what it's like when we relate to each other, as Ling Zhao was doing, without self-consciousness, which is another way of saying intimately. He's not worried about some third person watching the situation and judging it. 
The one who fortunately isn't looking is ourselves. That is, our inner tendency to monitor and pass judgment, distancing us from our interactions even as they're happening. How free it is when we aren't keeping score. How potentially generous a life lived with no one looking. There's another meaning I take from Ling Zhao's spontaneous fall. And that's a reminder that we are all falling together. That in some ways that's what life is. That all of us fall from one end of the universe to the other, lifetime after lifetime after lifetime. And it happens that we are falling together this lifetime through this world. Um, As we fall through this world, it offers an invitation to us, which is, come and see what life is like here, in this place, in this little corner of the universe. And what we discover here is that life is made of flame and water, wind and earth, sorrow and beauty, love and fear, light and dark, and everything in between. It's quite possible that not all parts of the universe are made like this. Um, I remember reading that the great clouds of interstellar gas that, that float in space, when they bump into each other, they make a chiming sound. So it's possible that there are parts of the universe that involve floating and chiming. Um, Not so much this world. This is a more complicated place. (laughs) But as we fall, as we fall through this world, if we pick and choose, instead of accepting all of life as it offers itself here, we're in some way refusing the invitation. If we say, I'll take your sunsets, but leave your diseases. We're being stingy in a way that hurts ourselves most of all. Ling Zhao says elsewhere that as we walk or fall the way, the heart-mind of the ancestors, which is another way of saying the deepest reality, is in every blade of grass, and they all hold us up. When Ling Zhao throws herself down, her kindness is clear and unhesitating, completely without self-concern. It's also funny. Those are the qualities of her enlightenment, what it looks like when all the energy bound up in the small story we're constantly telling ourselves, in all the picking and choosing of reaction and opinion and judgment, has been liberated into awakening. It's a free place that place. And Ling Zhao lived there all her life. She, like others in the old stories, chose the time of her death. She sat down, folded her hands, and disappeared. A poet wrote that her basket had completely poured out its contents, and she shot out of life like an arrow. So, Here they are, these people from a long time ago, almost a millennium and a half. And here are a couple of more stories about them to give you more of a feel. This is um, 
Tuesday morning at the Pong household. One day, while the layman was meditating in his hut, he had a little hut out back where he would sit, he suddenly cried out, and I will add parenthetically, loud enough for his wife and daughter to hear in the house, It's hard, hard, hard. And I've put ten coats of linseed oil on this platform, too. So here he is sitting here. Imagine this on a floor, you know, probably not much different than this. And he's saying, ooh, it's so hard to get up off the cushion and stand on that floor. It's hard, hard, hard. And Mrs. Pong said, it's easy, easy, easy. Just turn your eyes to the floor, lower your feet to it, and be on your way. (laughs) That's the problem. And then Ling Jiao said, It's neither hard nor easy. And this is where this quote comes in. The the heart-mind of the ancestors is in every blade of grass. In other words, the point isn't hard or easy, sitting down or standing up. It's none of that. It's that in everything, in every blade of grass, in every movement we make, in every choice, the heart-mind of the ancestors is there. It has nothing to do with hard or easy. If it's hard the heart-mind of the ancestors is there. If it's easy, the heart-mind of the ancestors is there. No problem appearing anywhere. Here are a couple of stories about um, Mrs. Palm. This one, this one I love. And, 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 you know, imagine your way into the scene. Kind of imagine this. She goes to a temple one day, but it's the meal time, and so they're not going to let her in. The gatekeeper tells her that she needs to go back. So she um, takes the comb out of her hair, and her hair falls all the, way, all the way down to the ground. And she walks away from the temple with her hair uh, wiping out the traces of her footprints coming and going as she walks away. And she, she says, I've gone back. <laughs> and I love that that image of wiping the traces away um, with her hair as she walks and um, later on she went back again in a really big way I mentioned before that her daughter and her husband and her son all died within a couple of weeks of each other they all according to the stories chose their deaths so she was the the last one left. And she cremated all of them, went around the neighborhood and said goodbye to all her friends and walked away, never to be seen again. Although it was assumed that she lived for a good while after that, but nobody knows what she was doing or when she died. Um, Again, to me, that moment is so vivid. We probably all know such moments from our lives when in an instant, through no conscious act of our own, everything changes. There was before, and then there's after, and everything is different. And she, she cremates what needs to be cremated from the past, and then she walks away into the new life. So, um, what comes next? Where did she go, and what did she do? We don't know but maybe we have a feeling sense of it from in our own lives. So I mentioned that the Pongs turned their home into a temple, and over time the temple became a shrine that people would make pilgrimages to. And there's a mention in a 19th century 
um, gazette, a sort of almanac of that place, that the temple, the shrine still existed and that it was considered a place of miracles. People would go there looking for miracles. And the two things that the Gazette mentions about it is the pomegranate uh, in the courtyard outside, which bloomed in the winter, and Ling Zhao's dressing stand in the house inside. That was all that was left. So why do these people speak to us if they do so so long after when we know so little about them we just have these few details of their lives stories about them I think it's because even though the details are few they're very vivid and there's something so palpable about them we begin to get a feeling for what they might have been like And they're locatable to us. We can imagine the house, the field with the sun growing the crops, um, Ling Zhao weaving baskets and her father tripping. And all of these things are are, um, imaginable to us. So um, in some sense, they're us. There's something we recognize. They're our friends and neighbors. But they're also a bigger us, you know, Um, There's something we aspire to, as well as something we recognize in ourselves. And I have a sense that these people who are bodhisattvas live at the gate. They live at the gate that stands between our ordinary lives and that, that life we aspire to, that often comes into this life and often our life goes into that place but they're there at the gate all the time and it seems to me that one of the qualities of the um, the aspiration for the bodhisattva vow is to be able to live at that gate and to feel the mixing of the ordinary moments of our life with that expansive, spacious part of our lives that is always there too but which sometimes slips out of our awareness so when we take up the bodhisattva way we are consciously choosing to join their lineage we are saying we are of the lineage of Ling Zhao and Mrs. Pong and Layman Pong and all the others that we recognize that it is our own, sometimes in actuality, sometimes in aspiration, but ours, deeply ours, not just as something we receive and learn about, but as something that we take on for ourselves and will dream on for the future. We are the Ling Zhaos of the future. We will dream what it means to be a bodhisattva on into the next generation. So one of the things that we talked about with Vimala Kirti was the idea that bodhisattvas are self-born. And by that we mean that a bodhisattva is born every time someone takes up the intention to be a bodhisattva. Everybody, every time someone puts the bodhisattva vow at the center of their lives, a bodhisattva is born. That's how it happens. It happens not with some 
ideal perfection of behavior, but with the sincere intention to walk toward that, to move toward that in our lives. Um, We put the vow to do what we can for the benefit of others at the center of our lives. And then we spend the rest of our lives exploring what that means. In every situation, in every part of our lives, um, what does it mean if the Bodhisattva vow is the center? What are the implications of that? How does that affect things? And again, not getting it right all the time, not being perfect about it, but um, just staying true to the inquiry. What is it like to have the Bodhisattva vow at the center? And as we do that, our self-birth is midwifed by our loved ones and our families and our co-workers and our sangha. It's a very um, old and venerable idea in all of Buddhism that to have a human life is a precious thing. And what is meant by that, as I understand it, is not that it's precious because it's better than any other life, but because of one thing. Because as human beings, we have the ability to choose to shape our own lives. We're not simply the receivers of circumstance. We make choices all the time. We shape our own lives. And that is the preciousness of the human life, is the the gift of being able to do that and also the responsibility of doing it. So another thing that taking up the way of the Bodhisattva is about is saying, I choose this way of shaping my life. I choose this way of receiving the precious gift of human life and doing the best that I can with it. And in that, there's something exactly like what we talk about in the koan way, that the koan view of human life is that our lives are acts of co-creation among ourselves and the world and the vastness, and that the koans are a way of constantly circulating that that um, sense of creation among what's ha- what our own particular circumstances, the world around us as we find it, and um, and the vastness that is always there as well. So, if you have um, the koan way as a, as an active engagement in that creation, that imaginative creation of a life, then you have the bodhisattva way and the vows and the precepts that are part of that as a method, a way of doing that. They um, speak to each other. They deepen each other. And the, um, the vows and the precepts and the intentions of the Bodhisattva way give a kind of shaping to the act of imagination that the koans bring which is a good thing, a a little bit of structure, a little bit of form, um, a little bit of um, A, B, or C. And at the same time, the the freedom and the spontaneity of the koan way keep us from becoming 
sort of sludgy and pure, because you can be both at the same time, <laughs> um, about how we hold the precepts and how we think of the bodhisattva way. It keeps things moving and um, questioning and lively. Um, okay, so if you, if you remember, there's one part in the Vimalakirti Sutra where it mentions um, all of the bodhisattvas who are gathered to hear this great debate between Vimalakirti and Manjushri. And there's a whole bunch of names of them. And we talked at the time about how this isn't arbitrary, that there's something really important, that you have this list of everyone who's present in this room. There's the unblinking bodhisattva, the wonderful arm bodhisattva, the jewel hand bodhisattva, the lion mind bodhisattva, pure emancipation bodhisattva, universal maintenance bodhisattva, the great celestial custodian, (laughs) jewel courage bodhisattva, root of joy bodhisattva, joyful vision bodhisattva, sounds of thunder bodhisattva, serene capacity bodhisattva, store of virtue bodhisattva, delights in the real bodhisattva. And it seems important... incredibly important because it's saying there is not a one idea of what a bodhisattva is. It's not this single template that all of us have to figure out how to crunch ourselves into and shape ourselves to. Really what our job is, is to find out what is the unique, particular, and never-to-be-repeated bodhisattva that you are, and you are, and you are. Each of us has to discover that for ourselves. That is the great gift we give to life, is to, is to figure out which bodhisattva is us. Um, and that's a recognition that not, every, not only is not everybody's skill set the same or everybody's um, gifts or everybody's interests, but also that our life circumstances aren't the same, that we're all shaped by different life circumstances. And that matters. That's not something to be gotten rid of or homogenized. That's something to be included and explored and made part of who we are. If, If we hold the bodhisattva ideal too purely, if we think of it as these sort of celestial figures floating above us that have nothing to do with us and our lives, this takes them completely out of the the world of aspiration for us. We can't aspire to that because it has nothing to do with human life and we're here living human lives. It puts them in the realm of the devotional. We can they become religious figures. Um, rather than aspirational figures. We can't think about how are they me and how, and how am I them and what is my relationship with them. We can only feel devotion for them or worship them, which is not a bad thing, but it's a different thing. And we're talking about the way that the bodhisattvas sit here on the cushion next to us. So that... Um, if we bring in the wisdom of the, the Japanese women we spoke about at the end of last year, the, um, the women who talked about everything being a Buddha, everything that happens is a Buddha, get sick, the sickness is a Buddha, 
have difficulty, the difficulty is a Buddha. If we bring in um, their wisdom, then we might add to the glorious list from, from Vimalakirti of the Bodhisattvas. We might add, not feeling so well today, Bodhisattva. <laughs> Too much to do, Bodhisattva. I kind of wish I were someplace else, Bodhisattva. <laughs> not liking the direction this is going at all, Bodhisattva. <laughs> not sure I'm up to this, Bodhisattva. And flying by the seat of my pants, Bodhisattva. <laughs> Because they're as true and as real and as important. And, and the other um, element that they bring in, I think, is that it takes away the sense of these sort of eternal, unchanging figures. I mean, today you might be flying by the seat of your pants, Bodhisattva, and tomorrow you might be jewel-hand Bodhisattva, right? It's changing all the time. We're moving in and out of these different states all of the time. So what remains constant is the aspiration. As long as the aspiration um, to put the vow at the center of our lives remains constant, it can rise and fall and ebb and flow and appear like this and appear like that and do all these different things because there is this through line of the vow at the center all the time and we don't have to worry moment by moment by moment if we have a fixed, unchanging idea of what a bodhisattva is, we're going to be spending a lot of time reinforcing the self by asking, how am I doing? How am I measuring up? We're going to bring in what the Korean teacher Sun Sanim called checking mind. Our mind is always checking. How am I measuring up? How am I driving? How am I doing? How, is, how, what, how am I um, relating to... This, this ideal. And in doing that, we're just digging the grooves of the self deeper and deeper and deeper because we can forget that the point is the aspiration, not how we're doing in any particular moment. And that, to, to stay connected to the aspiration, is to pour solvent all over the solidity of the self. So, um, let's see if there's anything else I want to be sure to say tonight. Yes, I do. If we have this sense of um, bodhisattva-ness as something that changes over a lifetime, that how we are a bodhisattva might look very different when we're 19 than when we're 45 than when we're 82, might look very different from Tuesday to Wednesday, you know, we can also realize that what it means to be a bodhisattva changes not only in our individual lives, but changes over history. Our sense of what a bodhisattva is is different than it was 100 years ago and 1,500 years ago because we have the history of all of these people taking up their aspiration, expressing it in different ways, and as a result, things have changed over time. 
we understand things about racism and misogyny and the way our personal choices affect the life of the planet in ways that people didn't before and had to learn. We start there. That's our platform covered in linseed oil that we can stand on because of the joyful effort of all of the bodhisattvas that have come before us. And how great is that, that we get to enter that stream and use the wisdom, um, the love, the compassion that they expressed in their lifetimes and begin there, begin with that momentum behind us so that we start there and we continue to expand the territory of what it means to live the bodhisattva aspiration. It's been getting bigger and bigger and bigger, and we too will make it a bit bigger. So when we look to the past, to figures like Ling Zhao and her mother, we can ask what do we see in them about awakening and about being a bodhisattva that hasn't changed? It's still exactly the same. That thing that we recognize in them is what we aspire to in ourselves. Um, And what has changed? What is different? What will be our particular expression of a shared aspiration with them? We have this shared landscape, this shared bodhisattva landscape, with all of these people through all of history. And we stand in this landscape with everyone who has ever chosen to orient their life in this way. And then we get to say, we get to explore, we get to discover what is the particular way that each of us stands there, that each of us dances there, that each of us weeps and sings and walks there. These talks are made available through your donations to Cloud Dragon, the Joan Sutherland Dharma Works. To learn more about her teachings and to make a tax-deductible contribution, please visit our donate page at joansutherlanddharmaworks.org.